Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. One of the things that a good entrepreneur does is they'll take an idea and then they'll present the idea out there. An idea either flourishes or it dies. Sometimes it needs a little nurturing to flourish, but you really have to hammer on it. You know, it really is like steel in the sense that if it's not exposed to a little heat and pressure, it doesn't evolve into what you need to evolve into. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome Solar Warrior to another Suncast interview. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. And the one non-renewable resource you've got that of course is your time. We promise to take good care of it today. Today's entrepreneur is no stranger to the solar startup world, having been part of the early M&A activity that ultimately became the juggernaut we all remember as Sun Edison. For better or worse, Sun Edison holds a kindred place for many of us as it has precipitated throughout the industry so many brilliant minds like that of today's guest, Mark Culpepper. He has become a good friend and uh, I've learned a lot about his take on the industry by the way that he got into the industry. He like so many of us, started looking at solar for his own home. And through that decision, ultimately, he was put into the fortuitous position to watch from the front lines as the solar industry really, truly began in earnest its current wave of growth and expansion in uh, the middle of the aughts of this century. Mark was our very first guest back in the beginning of 2022. If you haven't listened to that episode featuring the company he works for, Drone Base, I would encourage you to go back and check that episode out. We'll link to it in the show notes. So for the Suncast faithful, you will have heard his voice and recognize it and understand how drones are helping accelerate and improve the development and O&M lifecycle for solar companies around the world. Today, we're going to get more into Mark's backstory and how he has found his own superpower looking around the corners that ultimately have led to some of the most interesting inflection points in our solar industry. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope that you do, be sure that you subscribe in whatever podcast player that you're using. My analytics tell me most of you are listening on iOS, uh, but some of you are faithful Android users as I am, and you're listening through Spotify or Podchase or whatever it is that you use. I encourage you to go ahead and hit that notification bell so you'll get a notification the next time we drop an episode, just like we've obviously done here today. I hope that you got that notification or subscribe to our newsletter where we always email out at the end of the day of every episode that has come out. And we do a summary at the end of the week of interesting things that I find throughout the week from smart folks like Mark who help keep me informed. You can learn more about how the show works and how you can partner with us over at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Mark, as I mentioned, is the general manager of a company called DroneBase. He's very specifically focused on the solar division. DroneBase is a global company that focuses on many different segments. Later in the interview, we get into what all that means. But first, let me welcome Mark back to Suncast. Hey, Nico, it's uh, great to be here and great to be chatting again. Man, it's always fun to spend time with you. I learn 
a lot every time I do. And I am certain that we're going to get into some things that we haven't discussed yet, even today. I'd love to know, Mark, when you were growing up, well, first remind us where you grew up sort of geographically. And I'm curious if along with that answer, there were key influences in your household or in your neighborhood or circle of influence that informed how you think about business or entrepreneurship. So I grew up in a little town called Livermore. It's not really a little town anymore. At the time when we moved there, it was a little town. Wine country. <laughs> Wine country. Yeah. In fact, uh, it's funny you say that because, you know, if you talk to people who are in the viticulture industry out in California, they'll tell you that before Sonoma and Napa, there was Livermore. And before Livermore, there was Santa Cruz, believe it or not. So, you know, Livermore has got a great history with Wente Brothers and some of the other better known um, vintners out there, particularly for white wines. You know, uh, they have some good reds too, but uh, white wines is kind of where Wente cut their teeth, so to speak, and, and made their name. So anyway, I grew up out in Livermore. Livermore is also the home for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories and uh, has a lot of pretty interesting things going on for it. When I was there as a kid, it was the first place where the hydrogen bomb was developed. <laughs> yeah. You know, also pretty active in Department of Energy initiatives kind of across the board. So fusion energy is initiatives that have been developed and, and uh, pursued there for a very long time. You know, in my own childhood, I was exposed to computers at a really young age. We were in this kind of unique environment. Livermore historically is cattle country. You know, it's kind of on the coastal range in California. When I was a kid, we had the highest per capita of PhDs in the United States, combined with a lot of ranchers. So school was interesting because you had this really diverse mix of personalities and people, you know. I grew up in the northern part of the city, and there was a little public golf course there. And my early days of entrepreneurship was uh, fetching golf balls from uh, the pond. I, I think it was the fifth hole and uh, selling them back to the uh, golfers at 25 cents a, a pop. So, you know, that was kind of my uh, early experiments in the in the realm. <laughs> what about in, in your household? What was the conversation like around the dinner table with your family? Yeah, so it was interesting. You know, my, uh, my dad was uh, historically a, a minister. You know, I never really thought much about that from an entrepreneurial standpoint. But in his very early ministry, he was starting his own church. And you talk about something that's pretty hardcore entrepreneur activity. Uh, that's about as hardcore as it gets, you know, you know, because you're you're literally selling a dream. So easy to say you learned early to evangelize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, quite honestly, it's it's a true story, you know, you know, because literally I think his first church, they started their first mobilization, I guess you'd say, of church members in a local mortuary and then raised funds to build the church and literally built the church by himself with his own hands, you know, along with the ministry, of course. But, you know, that was kind of his early experience. And I'm quite certain that that affected me at some level, you know, because he was always pretty much a man of action from the standpoint of when he wanted to do something, he'd go do it. And, you know, really didn't care what other people thought, you know, and uh, I think uh, that definitely left an impact on me. Do you remember or have at least sort of the sentiment that he impressed verbally, like intentionally on you, the idea of 
do what it is that you think is right. Don't worry about what others think of you. You know, I don't know if he ever said it so much as he just showed it. You know, that's how he lived his life. And, uh, you know, was very, very resolved to things, you know. And like I said, he, he really didn't care what people thought of him, you know. And he had a pretty strong, a, a very strong uh, moral foundation of what was right and wrong, you know but was pretty flexible too in terms of recognizing that, you know, society consists of a lot of different people and they have different needs and different requirements and, and they live their lives in slightly different ways. So pretty unique in that regard, you know, definitely not your, not your typical Baptist minister in, in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know, pretty different in a lot of ways. And to be a Baptist minister, nonetheless. Yeah, he was, he was, um, I mean, this is kind of in the weeds here, but uh, there's a difference between, or there was a difference between the Southern Baptist and the American Baptist. And my dad sure. was an American Baptist and, uh, you know, they were kind of, um, of the belief that you, you know, if you were into the Bible, you read the Bible and then you interpret it for your heart and your own relationship with with your God and and your beliefs. And you went from there, you know, it wasn't so much a literalist interpretation as it was, you know, what you did. So that was, that was how he built his own foundation. And that certainly influenced us. We, we ironically were not even raised in the Baptist church. We we were raised Methodist because he had left the uh, ministry. And when he did, I went into social work. And um, when we had moved out to the little town of Livermore, we were trying to find a place to, to practice our beliefs and the Methodist church was the one that, that worked for us. So interesting uh, experience when you reflect on it and particularly, particularly in the context of entrepreneurship, you know, and um, stick to your guns, go out and do it and make things happen. Well, one of the things I remember is, you know, it also creates a foundation of multiculturalism or sort of a bit the ability to, not only blend into different cultures, but understand and have empathy and compassion for them. I think we'll get into a bit of how your college years uh, informed at that. What possessed you to go all the way across the country to Washington, D.C. for college? I was not a good student in high school. I was pretty, I won't say loose and wild, but I was definitely not your steady Eddie, straight A student, you know, in mm-hmm. high school days. You know, I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs don't necessarily fit into a nice, neat little package and, and, and organize their lives that way. That's kind of not how the entrepreneurial mind thinks, I think. So for me, after high school, I'd gone into the army reserve and, uh, immediately after high school, went off to basic training, basic armor school at Fort Knox, Kentucky. When I was done, came back and started going to community college and, Mm -hmm. I was not a terribly inspired community college student for the first, I'd say for the first probably semester. What happened though at that time was a friend of mine who was a year behind me ended up dying in a, in a car accident. And uh, he was a, a very beloved student at uh, Livermore High. His life was kind of all laid out in front of him. He had... Um, he was just one of those kids that you just want your kid to, to become when they get, they get older. You know, he was an athlete, student athlete, but really well liked across the, the school, you know, across all the groups in the school. Had already been accepted to, I think UC Davis, if I remember correctly. Anyway, long story short, he was on a ski trip 
up in the Northeast in Vermont, why somebody goes to Vermont to ski. That's a different question. They hit some black ice on the road and that was it. So at his uh, funeral, it was extremely well attended. Like the whole town felt like it was there, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, if I die tomorrow, who would show up and what would they say? And I really didn't like the answer, you know? So I spent a fair amount of time in self-reflection and uh, came to the conclusion that what I wanted to do was I really wanted to study environmental economics and ultimately ultimately go into the Foreign Service, uh, work internationally, and then at some point in the distant future, open up a center for environmental economics. So that was the grand plan back in, you know, back in the day. And Georgetown was the only place to go, really, uh, if you were going to aspire to go in the Foreign Service or go into international economics as really the premier school for that kind of work. For those who don't understand it all, what is environmental economics? So environmental economics, I don't know if you can find a, a real definition of it, a real tight definition, but it's essentially how do you build a sustainable world uh, using mm-hmm. some principles of capitalism, and, you know, the natural world? And how do you apply that to the natural world? I don't think that you could really find a place right now that has a good institute for environmental economics, honestly, still today. I wonder if like there's the Nicholas School for Environment at Duke. It's dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if someplace like that might get close. It might get mm-hmm. close. Um, I certainly don't know any of them. I mean, my my experience was um, at Georgetown, there was no environmental economics program, but there was an international wow. economics program right. with a focus on developmental economics. So that's oh, really wow, cool. what I did was I really tried to tune my radar to that and, you know, had some, had some, debates with some professors around the economic system, you know, and how our system is structured right now. I mean, that's a, that's a bigger, longer conversation, but you know, my basic view is that if we're going to create a sustainable world, it really has to start with our economic structure and economic models. It's funny that you mentioned having debate uh, because One of the three lines from Las Positas, where you did junior college, community college to Georgetown was participating on the debate and speech team. What about that particular extracurricular activity called your attention and how, upon reflection, did it form sort of the backbone of how you think about business and and maybe even life? Like how did how did that extracurricular activity in particular become really formational for you? Yeah, that was a. That's a huge impact on me. I'd say in terms of the skills that you can get out of college, um, particularly if you're in liberal arts or even econ, which is a little bit on the in-between zone, you know, writing and public speaking, those are two incredibly important skills. And for me, when I was in the public speaking uh, on the, the team at Las Positas Community College, I really focused my attention on environmental issues and advocated for and um, spoke about the environment and kind of what we were doing to it and actually um, spoke pretty passionately about um, global warming and just pollution in general, you know, back in the 80s. So there's different categories of speech, one speech to inform, things like that. And I ended up giving a speech on Biosphere 2, which is a project that – ran out of, um, I want to, it didn't run out of the University of Arizona, but it is located in Arizona. 
and a really interesting project. But I think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what speech teaches you is how to crystallize and communicate effectively and clearly on a specific topic and to really refine it. Because the years that I competed, I loved debate. Debate was a lot of fun. And, and I had a blast with it because I always like to argue points with, with people. But I think that one of the things that a good entrepreneur does is they'll take an idea and then they'll present the idea out there. An idea either flourishes or it dies. Sometimes it needs a little nurturing to flourish, but you really have to hammer on it. You know, it really is like steel in the sense that if it's not exposed to a little heat and pressure, it doesn't evolve into what you need to evolve into. You know, when you think about speech and speech competition, it's the same thing. I mean, you you give the same speech week after week after week, literally all year long, you know, and and you know, this being in, in the communications industry yourself, Nico, I mean, it's, you know, it takes time to refine that. And even if you're a smart kid or a smart young adult and you've got a great idea, that's great. But, you know, the reality is you have to work it. And, you know, we would get to the point in speech competitions where, you know, you have practice sessions with your coach or my coach was a, a gal named Janet Bree, wonderful speech coach, still a friend of mine at Las Positas. And, you know, some of the exercises we would do, we didn't do as many of these at uh, Las Positas, but she taught us exercises like this, where you would literally go up to the board, up to the whiteboard, and you would do the entire alphabet, you know, A through Z, right? You'd be writing the alphabet A through Z, and you would be giving your speech while you were writing the alphabet, and then somebody would be talking into your ear. Right. Wow. And what happens is you develop a unique focus and an ability to present an idea and have a completely separate conversation going on in the back of your brain. You know, when you give the speeches like this so many times, what will happen over time is you'll be presenting to an audience and your ability to instantly read the audience becomes very refined. Literally, your speech becomes a reversible tape in your mind. I could literally on the fly dynamically yank pieces of the speech out and throw it away based on what I thought the audience was doing. And then I'd be like, that section is literally 20 seconds because you'd be at that level of precision. I'm going to pull that out. I'm going to bring it up at the end, right? It's a really interesting skill and it really is a skill just like anything else. I can completely identify with that because I do that (laughs) like throughout the process of interviewing. It's, yeah. it's amazing. And I noticed at around probably three or 400 interviews in that it wasn't like I threw my script away. It was as though it was so internalized what I wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I knew where I wanted to take the whole interview that I could flow like I'm doing now with you mm-hmm. in what felt like a conversation, but was actually very organized. Yeah. It's an amazing skill. And I think that one of the things that good entrepreneurs are are good at is the ability to dynamically respond to the environment. Even though they have a pitch, they have an idea, you know, it takes time to refine it and it takes patience. And you learn things about it when you're presenting the same idea over and over again. You know, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. 
you know, or the Russian dollhouse, <laughs> depending on your yeah. <laughs> on your preferred poison, right? But you get exposed to a lot of people who have different reactions to your ideas. And you learn how to interpret those and dynamically change them and then go back to the drawing board and say, this section is just not working, right? Or this particular concept is not striking home. And if you think it's a really great concept and you really have to tweak it and iterate it and go through it many, many times before before it translates into something uh, remarkable. I mean, for, for me, uh, the other thing that you learn, so I ended up becoming the California state champ for informative speaking. And at, at that level, that was against, you know, the UCs and everybody it was just a college level competition. And generally speaking, if you win in California, you win nationals, you know? So I took first in California and then I went to nationals and I got booted out in the first round. What? <laughs> but, you know, my my takeaway from it was I really stopped because I was I was shocked. My coach was shocked. Kind of everybody was shocked. And and I took a step back and I said, did I do everything that I could possibly do? Mm-hmm. And the answer that came back was yes. And that brought up the point that sometimes the dice just don't roll in your favor. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it goes. And you pick up the pieces and you move on and you don't stop. You know, there's that famous quote from uh, Churchill that says, if you're going through hell, don't stop, you know, or the other one was um, something to the effect of, you know, success is going from one failure to the next with no lack of enthusiasm. You know, I think that for entrepreneurs, you have to have that in you. There's just got to be some part of you that's like, this is the right way to do it. And, you know, people don't agree with me and then too bad, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway, you know, until you're, you can prove to yourself that, that it's not going to work or that it, that it will work, that you start to see success and then really, really embrace those pieces and be grateful for those pieces where you're successful, successful and, you know, let the demons go where the demons are going to go and, and just don't pay any heed to them, you know, because every entrepreneur has got some sort of demon in them that tells them that they're wrong. They're not doing this right. You know, but I think that's, um, that's a really, really important attribute for an entrepreneur and one that they've got to be able to internalize and then channel into their own kind of superpower. Could you talk a little bit about how, language generally, like the use of language, the language acquisition and the travel that you were able to accomplish in those early years, in particular college, helped you be what I might deem as a good executive, but like gave you executive function? Yeah. um, Language informs action. And, you know, certainly the speech and participating in speech in my early days really uh, had a big impact on me. You know, in terms of how I think about things and how messages are delivered. I also traveled. I took a year off and, and did volunteer work over in Germany, actually, um, as an exchange student. And spent a lot of work learning German. I had had several years of German before I went over there. But, you know, there's nothing. If you're going to learn a foreign language, there's nothing like being in country. Okay. And, and devoting yourself to the language for that time that you're there like really committing that you are not going to speak a word of English, you know, other than for clarification or what have you. 
But even then, I, I just refused to speak English when I was yeah. there. And so what what I became extremely attuned to in that period was really listening mm-hmm. and really trying to listen carefully about what people were saying. And I, it's something that I still work on today and I still struggle with a little bit, as as probably my better half might say on occasion. But it is something that I've tried to commit to myself to over, over mm. time and over my life. Language informs action. So, for example, if there's a group of people in a room and I tell the people, okay, I'd like you guys to move over to the, to the northeast corner. Assuming there's some basic level of respect, <laughs> they'll, they'll move to the northeast corner, right? Now, if I tell that same group of people, I want you to march to the northeast corner, they will also get to the northeast corner but it will look and be a very different action. That is purely a function of language at that Mm -hmm. point, right? Literally the difference between go and march, right? And it entails and and encompasses certain ideas or or certain constructs in the mind of a person. So we like to say that consistency builds trust, and here at Drumbase, and you'll see that in kind of how we present ourselves. We present ourselves with very consistent language. We've spent a fair amount of time developing that language. Some might say too much, but I would never say that. And I think anybody who is a student of marketing and entrepreneurship understands that uh, consistency in language is the foundation upon which you start to build your concepts and your constructs and ultimately your business. If you have that, people start to identify with specific ideas associated with your business. So I can say something right now. And because I'm a, I'm a wizard, I know what everybody is thinking. Like, I'm going to say something to you right now and I know what you're going to say. And we're going to think specifically of brands. Mm. Yep. All right. All right. So I'm going to say smartphone. Okay. And there's only two things that you're going to think of, mm-hmm. Apple or Google, yep. Android, I should say. Mm-hmm. Right. iPhone I'm or say, Android, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say... Um, well, to be fair, since my first smartphone was a BlackBerry, the first thing that came to my mind, ironically, was BlackBerry, but I knew where you were going. <laughs> yeah. So if I say electric car... Tesla. Yeah, or Tesla. I, I might say Selectria Force, but that's just because I'm, yeah. I'm a total geek. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Now this one takes takes a little bit of time. You you'd have to kind of go back in history for this one. But if I say mainframe computer, probably IBM or Intel. IBM. Yeah. There you go. Now if I say CPU, CPU, it's I'm not probably sure. going to be Intel. Probably yeah. going to be Intel. Yeah. The, but the point is, is that big brands occupy space. Yep. Right. If you, athletic shoes, right? Yeah. There's exactly. no question who who everyone thinks yeah. of. Athletic shoes. Yeah. Nike. Right. Nike. To, and to enunciate that point as well, what Nike did better than anybody in the history of brands probably is like just do it. For sure. I don't think anyone can. Well, that's probably the most iconic marketing campaign in history. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think what happens is that, you know, when you use language correctly and it, it is reinforced by the product or the service that you offer, it has a profound effect on um, simplifying human thought and how people are, are able to identify a specific need 
with a specific solution. And this is kind of how the human mind works, right? So using language in, in a productive way can have a huge impact on how your business is perceived and how much traction you're able to get. So when, when I was running marketing at uh, Sun Edison, one of the things that I would say is we're going to have quantitative metrics on our marketing and we're going to have qualitative metrics. And one of the qualitative metrics that we had was what I call bounce back. And bounce back basically is you throw an idea out into the world and you keep on throwing that idea out. And at some point, you're going to be at a show, at a conference, you're going to be in a sales engagement, something is going to happen. And unsolicited, somebody is going to come to you and talk to you about the idea that you've thrown out there. This is what I call bounce back. That's a qualitative metric. When did you first experience that? Uh, yeah, so Sun Edison, <laughs> this, is, this is actually great. So Sun Edison, as you know, was the first to sell power, not power plants. And we were basically saying that we're creating a new space. So we approached Gartner and we work with Gartner and we said, look, you should really define the segment industry in different areas, you know, but we sell PPAs and we're the largest PPA provider. And so we started messaging that we were the largest um, segment leader in solar, solar energy as a service, S-E-A-S, mm -hmm. right? And Gardner took that up and they put the magic quadrant out and they basically like just pushed that idea pretty hard. And the best example of bounce back I can ever think of, we got a call from a person who shall not go named, but who was, was a, a VP at Powerlight. And uh, it was absolutely pissed off because uh, Gardner had named us as the largest solar energy as a service provider in the market. And when I heard this and they, they literally called us up and said, you guys need to stop marketing. This is utter nonsense. You know, largest solar provider, largest solar energy as a service provider, you know, right. He was very upset, you know, and after the phone hung up, we all started laughing and we said, we won, we've already won. Right. Cause yeah. we're so deep in his head at this point. That's right. I was just going to say it's the battle it's of the mind. <laughs> He just, he just can't get out of, can't, can't, can't put it out of his head, you know? And so that's a kind of an extreme example in bounce back, but bounce back happens all the time. If you have a good, successful and differentiated product and you occupy and you're really occupying that unique space in people's minds, you can really start to see how that reflects on a, on an actual need. It has to be an actual need most times or an emotional need. You, know, you see um, tyrants and, and dictators take advantage of this feature of, or, or, or defect, if you depending on how you want to say it, of humanity, where, you know, a lie repeated over and over and over and over and over again starts to become a truth. Right? I think nobody understood the construct of consistency builds trust probably better than Adolf Hitler, right? Um, he spewed absolute garbage, you know, um, but it was the same garbage over and over and over again. And a lot of people got sucked into it, you know, and, and others have done very similar things, you know, in more modern times. So I think that aspect of language is absolutely critical to building your, your brand or building your identity. And like I said, it can't just be an idea that is not attached to a real need. 
The need can be emotional or the need can be an actual product need, but it must be some actual element that you can grab onto and say, yeah, it's real and it's been verified. Well, Mark, it's not lost on me and hopefully for the benefit of posterity and those who do tune in, we'll be able to capture a bit of your early story, but also the real fundamental sea change that was happening in the industry as you became a part of it. Prior to getting into the solar industry, you had a career in tech and, you know, through that and your time in solar, you've really been at the forefront and helped in no smaller and significant way create businesses like Sun Edison and businesses that companies like Sun Edison were willing to acquire for better or worse. Uh, and we don't need to go necessarily down the rabbit hole, uh, as it were, of Sun Edison, but you've been incredibly involved in the strategic planning of our industry, something that I think many listening would want to be able to spend an hour with you over a whiskey and just ask follow-up questions. Did you start out imagining a pathway that suggests I'm going to make a career out of strategic planning as a core function or, you know, was it something that sort of evolved out of other activities? For me, it was a question of where my natural inclination was. I've always been fascinated with strategies and tactics, you know. I'm a student of history, and, and if you're a student of history, you're a student of war, you know. I'm a great fan of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Oh, I don't so know good. if you, yeah, he's amazing, you know. But as a kid, I was also enamored with war games for whatever reason. I honestly don't entirely know why. Uh, it certainly wasn't from my dad or from my, my, uh, my family necessarily. But what that forced me to do and what those, um, what those early experiences really helped inform was understanding detail to sufficiently understand how you can apply detail to strategic initiatives. And they used to say that, uh, that Patton, one of the things that made him a great general, and you see this with um, a lot of field generals like Patton and Rommel and some others, is they understand the tools that their soldiers use really intimately. Like Patton could tear down a, an M1 Grand just like a, a regular grunt could, right? Rommel was not afraid at all. He was not the general who sat in the headquarters and just waited for things to happen. Like when things got stuck, he was at the front lines, literally, you know, rapping on people's tank hatches, you know, and they'd be like, pop the hatch. Like, what, what the hell are you doing out here? You know, my bullets flying around. And, you know, he would say, you've got to take out that point right there and provide guidance and immediate, you know, so the, it's, it's the application of tactics and the context of strategy that allow you to succeed, you know, and allow you to move forward. So for me, I kind of stumbled into tech, honestly, I, I grew up in the Livermore Valley, as we talked about earlier, and, and quite a few of my friends had computers and I just assumed that you know, back in 1978, 79, everybody was playing with computers when they were, you know, young kids. And I really didn't put the math together on this until much, much later in my life, probably in my late 30s, early 40s, where I realized like I was probably point, you know, 001% of the planet that was, you know, at that age, literally taking computers apart and putting them back together, you know, and understanding where the pieces were. You know, early in my career, when I finished at Georgetown, one of the things I realized was I did not want to study international economics. <laughs> and um, 
while I thought it was interesting, I kind of thought it was broken. And I also didn't want to go into the foreign service. You know, I just started getting jobs and job offers in tech. You know, I initially put together the um, help put together data networks at Georgetown's computer labs and then in their career counseling center and then built a database for them. And, you know, nobody had trained me. I hadn't taken any training in this stuff. I just kind of picked it up, you know. And so when I moved back to California, this was back in the 91 uh, recession, moved back to California, people were like, well, what are you going to do? And I go, I think I'm going to become a, a field engineer. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like <laughs> degrees in international economics. And I was like, yeah, it's all right. I'll figure it out, you know, and uh, ended up entering for a job. that was a subsidiary of Montgomery Securities. Montgomery Securities back in the day was the the bad boys of the West Coast, San Francisco financial markets. They took quite a few companies public, but they were really brazen, really bold. They had their own trading floor. You know, I went to interview with TriStar Market Data, which was their wholly owned subsidiary that provided market data. I got into the interviews and I was talking to the CEO. He asked me like four questions in a row and I was like, I don't know. I've never done it. No idea. You know, and by the time I was done, I was literally like out in the waiting room and I'm thinking, if I leave right now, I can save another $2 on my parking fee. (laughs) (laughs) And so they called me back in and he said, look, Mark, uh, we think you're a really smart guy and you have a lot of potential, but you don't know anything about our space. He goes, so we're, we're kind of, you know, thinking this might not be the right place for you. And I said, well, I thought about it for a second. I said, well, let me make you a deal. You hire me under contract for 30 days. If you don't like me, no harm, no foul. I'll go my way. You go yours. But if you like me, you make me an offer, you know, full-time offer. It took him like 30 seconds. He was like, okay, that seems like a good idea. That's so beautiful. And you know, it's, it's amazing that more people don't do that today. Yeah, I agree. I'm like, if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I do that. I don't know. Almost nobody knows this insider baseball here, but like this is, that's how I hire every single person <laughs> at Suncast. Mm-hmm. Everyone starts on a 90 day, 30 to 90 day sort of yep. band, yep. depending on their comfort level. And this is the eighties where you, I mean like the heyday. This is actually early nineties. This is like oh, okay. 91, 92. I can't Fascinating. Remember what it was right after, yeah. right after I graduated from Georgetown. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So that job I just poured myself into that job and it was, it was a very difficult job because we were on market hours. So we had to be there, you know, I had to be at work at five 30 in San Francisco. And then after the hours would close, there was a lot to maintain on the system. So I was typically working five 30 to seven 30 every day. And I was on call whenever they needed me, which a lot of times, you know, I'd get called up and, you know, one in the morning and say, Hey, the system's down. You got to get in. And I did it for a pittance. You know, it didn't matter. I was like, just learn everything I could learn. To your point, it's the detail, understanding how everything works. Yeah. I mean, literally at the point where I was, I was, um, there's something called a protocol analyzer, which is, um, I think of it as, um, at the time was essentially a computer that you would attach to an ethernet or a network wire And you would see all the bits that were traveling across the wire. And you then had to interpret those and find out what was going on on communications. 
So I learned data network from the literally from from the wire up, you know, and ended up from there going to Cisco Systems. Uh, Cisco Systems back in the 90s was kind of the golden child. You know, it was a phenomenal place to work, just an amazing place to work and really high growth, high activity. John Chambers was CEO, phenomenal leader, phenomenal just inspired gentleman, you know, um, and by, by gentleman, I really do mean he was, he was really a gentleman. He was a, just a really good guy. You know, he taught a lot about strategy, actually. You know, I was there for two years. I was at Cisco for two years. And I think it was the first year I was there. We had our last, the last sales team meeting that Chambers could actually attend because the organization was growing so fast. He couldn't, he couldn't meet all the sales teams anymore. You know, he had to break it up into regions and he would meet with regional heads and stuff like that. But he was talking about, you know, what happens to companies as they grow? Cause John Chambers was, he was like literally one of the guys who shut the light out, the lights out at, um, they were a competitor to IBM. They got their, their butts handed to him. I mean, before Cisco. Yeah, before Cisco. Yeah. Um, he came to Cisco, I think, as a sales director and wow. within a handful of no years, way. you know, was promoted to CEO's role. So just phenomenal. But his whole thing was like, he said, look, what happens when you're in a growth curve in an early market is at some point, as you start to separate from your competitors, what that translates into is you're able to devote more dollars to R&D which creates more distance between you and your competitors because you can deliver better product. Yeah. And at a critical point of market penetration, it's literally almost impossible for a competitor to catch you. And this thought stuck with me and has stuck with me for years. Cisco kind of took the GE mode said like, if we're not one, two or three in a market, we're not going to play in the market. Like why bother? You know, it's not accretive to equity. It's not accretive to the business. And I'm not going to do it. And really one or two are the only positions that you really want to be in. Cause three, there's a pretty big discount on yeah. three, you know, but beyond three, nobody knows who you are. You're just invisible. You know? So a lot of what I learned from that was how do you apply tactics in such a way that you can gain strategic advantages? And this is all the way down to like, how do you hook up a router correctly? You know, I mean, then back to that point that I was making earlier about um, Pat and Aramal, knowing the tools, like really understanding how your systems work. I'm always somewhat amazed at CEOs or executives who really don't understand what they're doing. And I, I don't mean that in a malicious way. What I mean is they don't actually know um the down to that level of detail inside the business. That's not that unusual these days, just because everything is so specialized, you know, I would never be able to go into code and be like, well, this is clearly where the problem right. is. You, know, you <laughs> left that. This, this colon needs to be Same. a semicolon, you know, it's like, I, you know, I asked someone uh, recently, should I learn how to code at 40 and uh, I'm 42 now? And the answer was no, uh, you should learn how to manage people who know how to code. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you have to know enough in order to be able to have an intelligent conversation yeah. and realize where the risks are. You know, there are people in the, in the industry and generally true in other industries, there are people in the industry right now. And you're one of them that 
that truly impressed me with their level of detailed knowledge of how everything works. Throughout this conversation, in fact, I've been thinking about a mentor of mine that I worked for at Allian and, and before the first time I worked for him was at Trina. You may have met, run into Mark Kingsley. No surprise that-, that name sounds, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sure I And did, he was actually. at GE yeah. for a long time. And so you probably yeah. met Mark when he was yeah. at Trina and you were at Sun or maybe a little before, but yeah, he's one of those guys who as a leader knows that to the, the every, just such a, he like, he obsesses about every detail. He could tell, he can sell the product better than anybody. He mm-hmm. is, he is in there with the engineers, sleeves rolled up, designing the product. Yeah. He understands how the business is financed to the nth degree. And, and just at every, at every point, but he's GE trained as well. You don't know, right. Mm-hmm. Which is, there which has go. a whole other culture of thinking strategically. Yeah. But I thought about him earlier when you were talking about um, the importance of messaging. I've never worked for a CEO. And I would imagine that your team feels this about you. I would just imagine having not worked with you directly. Mark would, he was the guy who would land from a cross-country flight mm-hmm. and 42 emails would, would fire off immediately, right? He didn't actually like yeah. use the Wi-Fi to do, he just used it as like off time. And he would have iterated on the pitch deck like five or six times and added four slides that had more data than I'd, I'd seen across the, across the entire yep. business, right? And he was just prolific about constantly iterating on the messaging and owning categories and owning the domain. Yeah. Yeah. Super important. You know, I think that um, you had asked kind of about uh, strategy and how do you get to strategy? I think for me, this really understanding detail and finding places where you can exploit detail, right? And how do you translate and then translating that exploitation into a strategic advantage and into an overall strategy? You know, I mean, it's Sun Edison, you know, our, our early days, we didn't have consistent language in Sun Edison when we first started, you know, and that was one of the, one of the big things I do. I, I do something and I call it four Q, you know, and a four Q basically is there's four questions that every great brand has to be able to answer, right? What's your elevator pitch? Who are your clients? Who are your competitors? And what are your top three leave behinds? And if you look at any great brand, they can answer those four questions. So it's the elevator pitch. Can you tell me in 30 seconds or less what it is that you do? And then who are your clients, i.e. your target client or your avatar? Is that right? Yeah. Who are the people that you're going to sell to? Yeah. Who do you sell to? Who else is trying to sell to those people? Yep. And when you get in front of those people, what are you leaving? So they remember you. Yep. Exactly that's right. So good. <laughs> and that's it. That was worth the price of admission right there. Like we get yeah. in the interview. I'm done. <laughs> I've chilled. I'm like, this is great. This is like, this is perfect. Yeah. I could do four separate episodes on each one of those, man. That is so, I see it over and over and over again, as I know you do. Um, I mean, I'm guilty of it here at Suncast and I teach branding to clients. I'll work with them on yep. messaging and, and, and yet you could poke a thousand holes in the Suncast website and in our collateral and in the lack of consistency across collateral, the carpenter's mm-hmm. house is never built. <laughs> yeah, totally true. Totally true. It's one of those things too, Nico, that it just takes a lot of work. And because people see great brands, they just assume, or for example, people who come from great brands, oftentimes they're not good at branding Mm. because they don't understand the mechanics of building the brand. They understand that they, they can inherit an infrastructure of brand, right? 
give you a case in point. So Cisco Systems, you know, there was a um, company sold called Symbol Technologies. They had handheld devices which allowed you to do scanning. And they started working with Windows CE, and then they started to build these kind of more complicated scanners that had databases and things like that. And as part of that, they ended up developing a wireless, um, what's called a wireless switch. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a fast way to connect a lot of devices wirelessly and, and control them. They're used everywhere now. Um, in fact, you have a switch in your home or you have a wireless router that has switching capabilities. Like, you know, they're used everywhere now. But... Symbol was trying to displace Cisco, and which is delusional in and of itself. The bad strategy, right? Yeah. You don't go head to head. You try and go at an angle and in some other way. But they ended up recruiting a bunch of people from Cisco. I did competitive marketing for them under contract for about uh, six months and basically said, this is never going to work. You guys are wasting your time, you know, uh, which wasn't a message they wanted to hear. But, but at the time, what I, what I basically told them was I said, you really need to work on your brand identity. At the time, I didn't have, I hadn't crystallized the thought around four cues. Yeah. But that's really what I was trying to say to them. Like, you need to build your brand you know, because your brand is not well-defined right now. And all the executives there had come from Cisco. And when people thought of Cisco, they thought of data networks, period, in stop. It didn't matter if it was a wireless network, if it was a, a landline network or an ATM network, it didn't matter, you know. Um, they just were like Cisco network, boom, done, right? Next item on my to-do list. And what I was trying to tell them was that It's fine that you brought a bunch of executives from Cisco over, but their whole attitude was like, well, we're symbol. So, you know, we have a great brand. And I was like, no, you don't have a great brand. You actually have to build the brand. And because they had come from a brand that had already been established, they did not know how to build a brand. They just assumed that there were magical things that would happen with a brand, you know. So you really need to be able to take a team from scratch who is, has no bias, you can go in with a concept of your brand, right? To kind of set strategy. But if you don't, if you don't really do the hard work of talking to prospects, talking to existing customers, talking to people internally, talking to board members, executive team members, and really scrubbing those answers that you get back from them and open up really open dialogue conversations with them, you're never going to find a good brand. You just won't define it. You'll come up with an idea. It won't be tested. You'll take it out to market and it's just going to get shot full of holes, you know, and it's never going to catch on. For me, strategy always comes back down to understanding the tools and the tactics and then building the strategy from there. You have to build it from your, your solid foundation, right? I've, always enjoyed that like when i when i first left tech i came back to one day from work i was working in uh, data security network security the second gulf war had started not too long ago and and uh, my wife and i both felt pretty strongly that it was a bad maneuver um that was not our view on the first that was not my view on the first gulf war by the way no, uh, but the second goal for it, that was, was a colossal mistake. And so, you know, I came home, I was thinking, well, what can we do? And we talked about it and we said, well, we can get, we can get solar on a roof. Yeah. So I started to do research around solar 
I was amazed by even back then, this is 2004, 2005, at how many companies there were in the space, even at that time, you know, and it was much larger than I expected, but still pretty clearly a young, maturing industry. So I started to look at it and I said, okay, well, maybe I need to take a step back from solar and just look at energy in general. So I spent about six months looking in my after hours after work, I would just do research on the energy markets, you know. And everything kept pointing me back to distributed energy resources, you know, and specifically solar generation. And I was like, this is really interesting. And so I came home one day and I said to my wife, whose name ironically is Sun, I said, you know, Sun, I I think I'm going to quit my job. And she said, I think that's a very bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I said, no, 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 really. Hear me out. Hear me out. And, you know, I kind of walked her through it. I said, I I think, you know, it's going to take some time to kind of rebuild to where I'm at right now. But I think within probably nine to 12 months, I'm going to be there. And this industry is going to have really long legs. I mean, this is going to go on for a very long time. I mean, we're talking probably until I'm dead, you know? And so she kind of came around to it. I made the move, made the leap. And as part of that leap, what I basically did was I said, how can I brand myself in this emerging market? So I wrote a paper on comparing the transition that was happening in the energy market with the transition that happened on the internet back uh, during the 90s and the similarities between these two and the key markers, right? And that paper got published in Green Tech Media and kind of helped me establish a little bit of notoriety, you know, with the venture community in particular. And was interesting, you know, and that was kind of a, an early strategy blueprint for what I saw happening in the sector, because I started to look at that and say, how can we apply this to work at Team Solar? How can we apply it? You know, when I was at Sun Edison, how can we apply it to Sun Edison? I think the, the big thing that I would do differently now that um, in hindsight, you know, when you're young, you're impatient. Uh, You're an entrepreneur, so you're impatient. These impatient qualities are good in many ways, but they are also a challenge for entrepreneurs because you have to look at your time horizons correctly. It's really hard to do that. You know, otherwise the the way I (laughs) compare it, as I said, it's it's a little bit like if, if you're an entrepreneur that's too far ahead of the curve, it's like going to Lake Tahoe with a surfboard and expecting to ride great waves. Someday there's going to be a great wave in Lake Tahoe and your bones will be bleached and on the bottom of the lake on the day, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you got to go to the place where the waves are, you know, and, you know, I think in the energy sector, having come out of tech, tech is very fast moving, you know, and the transitions that happened in tech were, were radical. You know, if you look at a telco switch, Right back in the day, a big telco switch was like a $30 million investment. They were incredibly expensive. And then Cisco comes along and other companies come along and they're like, here's the equivalent of a telco switch and it might be a million dollars. You know, maybe. That meant you can amortize it in the space of five years as opposed to having to amortize it over 20, right? And you think about what that meant for the industry, it meant that it was going to get turned on its head pretty fast. And that's exactly what happened during the nineties, you know, 
the traditional carriers all got just completely turned on their heads, right? The energy markets, however, that thought was in my head as I went into solar, but I really didn't understand the energy markets. I thought I understood them. You know, it, it took me a long time to actually really internalize the long investment cycles and what that would mean for energy as a whole. I don't think that today's advocates for nuclear power understand that. I really don't. I think that is where their their blind spot is. That's kind of a bigger discussion, but um, you know, we can jump into that at some point too. Hey, Sunshine, clouds got you down? It doesn't have to be that way. Leading solar enterprises around the world are making the most of their investments in Sunshine with Solar Anywhere, the data and intelligence service from Clean Power Research. Whether you're designing or operating solar assets, Solar Anywhere helps you reduce project risk and improve performance benchmarking. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Mark, you've put this sort of blueprint out there. Green Tech Media has picked it up. But to my knowledge, you still didn't have a job in the industry. Can you talk a bit about how you sort of called around and and ultimately found a home in the industry where you could put that strategic thinking to work? Yeah. So I actually called on, on quite a few companies. What I basically did was I went to Paralyte's website. I looked mm-hmm. up all of their value-added resellers and I just started calling them. And if they were available... I'd go and meet with them. And my pitch was pretty straightforward. I was like, hey, look, I work in the tech sector. Uh, I'm looking to transition into the solar industry and, you know, love to um, get your thoughts on kind of what works for you, what doesn't work for you and what that looks like. And literally, I just cold, cold called them. And, you know, a lot of them were like, yeah, I don't got time. Click, you know. Um, for those but- who are unfamiliar, really quickly, Powerlight was a Bay Area solar installer, developer, product manufacturer run by a guy that many in the industry know now, Dan Sugar with uh, Tom Dinwoody. And they pretty much, I mean, they were one of the early success stories sold to SunPower. So just want to contextualize that for anybody that's not familiar yeah, with PowerLight. Yeah, they they were the big dogs at that time. They were really the big dogs. And, you know, they wouldn't really spend much time talking to me. You know, they were too busy uh, to deal with another another young gun, right? There actually was a job that I applied for there and I didn't get the job, but, um, that makes two of us. Yeah. (laughs) So I was, I was like, okay, whatever. Um, so I didn't, that didn't stop me. I just started calling their resellers and eventually I called Rick and Angela Leveso at team solar in Sacramento. And Rick heard me for, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or so. And he basically said, Sure. Come on by my place, you know, come to our place. We're in SAC, you know, gave me the address and drove out there, met he and his wife, Angela. And Rick was just an open book, which was so refreshing 
to come out of tech where everything is very clandestine, <laughs> clandestine, and you know nobody wants to share anything, and everybody's got some top secret formula that's going to make them a millionaire, and blah blah blah. And Rick was like, "Yeah, what are you going to do? It's hard work. Like you know, we're dealing with steel and glass and and low and mid voltage uh, systems, and like that's it. You know, that's what you got to do. You just got to go do the work. You know." So we start talking and I basically, I didn't have a job, but I basically just started showing up at their place every day and just working with them on their strategy and specifically on kind of how they could, how they could grow their business and kind of what the next steps were. And at some point I remember Rick saying, Hey Mark, why don't you come to the office? And I like walked in the office and I thought, Oh, he's going to you know send me on my way. And he goes, look, man, you're showing up here every day and I, I got to pay you something. <laughs> it's like, And I was like, okay, you know? And so I said, look, I don't need a lot right now. It's just something to get me, get me started. And, you know, it was totally an act of faith. I have to say both on his part and on my part and my wife's part, you know, and that is part of the entrepreneur's journey. You know, you have to have faith and you have to, and I'm, you know, you can interpret that however you want religiously or however, for me, it's a spiritual component, you know, for sure, but you got to have faith and you got to, you know, put your energy into it in in a real positive way. And so Rick hired me as his VP of business development and we started to do planning with a couple people there, Matt Lafferty was one of their guys. And Matt was one of these guys who had probably, he probably forgot more about solar than I ever learned. Like he was just a rocket scientist when it came to that stuff. Anyway, so we started doing strategy planning sessions at Rick and Angela's house. And the first question I said is, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? You know, and you know, how big do you want this thing to be? And we're like, well, we want it to be as big as we can get it. And so we started talking and I said, well, you got one or two paths, one of three paths, but the third path is not really an option. You either sell the company, you go out and fundraise or you go out of business because this industry lends itself to large operations. It's not one of those things that's going to tolerate tiny players, at least not in the way that you guys are thinking about it, you know? So we started to actually put together a business plan and right about that time we got approached, Rick and Angela got approached for acquisition by a German firm called Conergy and Conergy was kind of the big dog, you know, for German and they were trying to establish a presence in the United States and, you know, I said, well, you know, where are your guys' heads on this? And they'd say, well, we would entertain it, but, you know, um, and I said, you need a second buyer. And I said, yeah, we need a second buyer. And like, I'd say within five days, Jigger Shaw ended up calling us. <laughs> no, I told you. No, it was, I think, put it out uh, there. yes, either Angela or Rick put out a feeler and Jigger called us, you know, that was the path. I mean, I hadn't been there six months, you know. What happened was we ended up getting two different offers, you know, one from Conergy, which was basically all cash, and one from Sun Edison, which was almost complete equity. And Rick asked me, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, look, man, you you guys have been, you guys have been putting your, your blood, sweat and tears into this thing for five years, literally mortgaged our home, right? I said, 
if you're going to do this, I go, Rick, if you're asking for my advice, my advice is to take the cash because you never, you never lose going to the bank. You know, if you're asking me who I think is going to be the dominant force in the industry and what's the right model, it's definitely Sun Edison. People do not want to buy power plants. They want to buy power and they want it to be clean and green and all that other good stuff, but they don't want to own the power plant. And to Rick and Angela's credit, you know, or maybe their their regret. I'm not sure how they look at it these days. I think they probably don't regret it, actually. Yeah, I need to have Rick on the show, man. That would be a fantastic Yeah, interview. Rick Rick is a fun guy. And yeah. um, so Rick, and they, they put all their chips on the table and said, we're going Sun Edison. You know, really took it from there, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of the next chapter. And, and so we ended up, all of us ended up going over to Sun Edison and working there. I want to stop for a minute for those who actually appreciate the, the, the narrative arc of storytelling and what Mark said earlier about being a debate speech person, about just really understanding your message. Because the thing I've appreciated and admired about great leaders in our industry, of which I would put you in that category, Mark Kingsley is in that category, the folks that I know who run companies well, they always, always, always have a story that they stick to, right? And why is that important? So as the interviewer, I do a pre-interview. Some people know that, some people don't. I have my notes. I'm kind of following along with them. I literally know exactly what you said in the pre-interview and almost <laughs> verbatim. You literally said in the pre-interview, they put their chips on the table, <laughs> the blood, sweat, and tears, like almost verbatim. I love it that um, it is such ingrained. It's because you do tell this, these stories. As a leader, we need to be able to tell a compelling narrative that pulls people into the, that gets them emotionally involved. Um, so I wanted to commend you on that. I mean, throughout the last 90 minutes of us chatting in the, in the last six plus months of you and I really developing a friendship, I have so appreciated how consistently your message is. And it goes back to you know, what we learned earlier in the, in the interview about the importance of messaging, the importance of language. We could do a whole long interview and I would love to, or maybe we'll do like an offsite mastermind at some point on exactly how you thought about the con construct of marketing with Sun Edison. I really want to sort of fast forward from there, like the team solar thing, boom, that was the trajectory that got you in the solar industry. Anybody who's followed the industry can understand how Sun Edison was a catapult for, um, for your career. But the reality is uh, post Sun Edison, you ended up taking a departure. I did. Yeah. You went and, and did some, and sort of had some forays outside of the industry and ultimately created a company called Precision XYZ. Again, I think that from your superpower, which you've expressed as being able to look around corners and see what the future is bringing, I want to understand what ultimately got you into drone base. So give me that narrative now, sort of as we sort of round the picture for folks to understand sort of where you've ended up. After I was at Sun Edison, I ended up running Global Asset Management and OM, and we built out that entire infrastructure and the entire approach to making sure that we were keeping the trust with the investors and with the public about the technology. And that's really how I see O&M and asset management. You're the keepers of the trust. You're the ones who basically hold yourselves to account, right? Because that's what the promise has always been. So we were in that and we were really in the detail and we had some plants that were not performing well and we ended up using thermal cameras, you know, handheld thermal cameras to to really find out where defects were and things like that. So anyway, skip forward. I'm at a conference over in Germany and this is in 2010, I think it was. And I see one of the first thermal drones 
you know, had a flight time of like 12 to 15 minutes. The drone was like literally like 150 grand, you know, it just wasn't practical at that point in time. There was no regulatory framework. You couldn't use it. But I looked at it and I said, this thing's going to get smaller, better, more efficient. It's going to be a better solution. I know it is. So when I left Sun Edison, I, and you know, as you noted, I kind of moved off. I took a break from solar. I was exhausted, honestly, mentally spent, you know, with solar by that time. Cause I'd been at it hard for about six years and I was just like, I need to step away. So I went back into pure tech. I did some really unusual stuff in pure tech. Then, uh, skip forward 2016 by this time, Drones were much further advanced. You know, it had been about four or five years. This was that whole thing about knowing when to get on the wave. And I felt like this was the right time to do it. So we started the business myself and, and my colleague at DeBoer, uh, an old friend of mine from way back when in the, in the 90s, actually, who was a pilot and also a robotics and specifically a UAV pro. And we started a business uh, called Precision XYZ. We initially focused on the solar sector. In fact, that's all we focused on. Uh, initially, we started out with surveyors and then eventually migrated purely into solar. And really focused our attention on kind of the value chain from early stage topographic mapping, construction tracking, and then thermal inspections for asset O&M or uh, resale, right, or um, decommissioning. And that actually ran pretty well. We ended up getting about a gigawatt of assets inspected over the course of a little over three years. But the thing that struck me in that was, you know, this industry requires that you operate at scale. If you are not operating at scale, you're just not thinking about the problem the right way. So, you know, if I think about thermal inspections as an example of that, a guy with a thermal gun, he can, he can scan about a, a megawatt a day, you know somewhere in that range. A person with a drone can scan probably 20 to 30 megawatts a day, right? Now, a person with a manned aircraft, so we got approached by a couple firms for acquisition. And ironically, the only firm that actually was using manned aircraft in their solar ops was DroneBase. And I was like, those are the guys. Of the people do, that were interested in acquiring you, the only yeah. ones using manned, Okay. Yeah, it was drone base. And I was like, those are the guys. Because I was like, I'm either going to have to go raise capital. Well, I'm going to have to raise capital if I'm going to do yeah. this. Right. And the timing was terrible. COVID had just kind of descended on us. And I was like, it's just not going to work. The timing's not there. So. And I didn't, I didn't hear the number. Maybe I missed it. But drone, if a man is a megawatt a day, drone is 30 megawatts a day. Manned aircraft equals what per day? So when we first started at drone base, when I first started there, we were doing about 200 megawatts a day on average. Uh, last year, we did 516 megawatts in four and a half hours. We expect that number to go up this year again. I don't know if we'll hit a gigawatt a day, but we're going to be very close, you know, very close to a gigawatt a day. You know, your ability to collect data with manned aircraft, it just, you just can't get close at all. And the economics do not favor drones. Even if you talk about a drone in a box that, you know, you know, jack in the box pops open, the drone flies around and it comes back and lands again, that drone in the box is going to have to be maintained, you know. Um, so you, you still don't entirely get away from the problem of the unit economics. Unit economics with manned aircraft are just much more compelling. Right. So and we, could, we could go deep down the rabbit hole of how 
the GIS industry, fueled in large part by broadly the, the transportation industry, Google Maps, et cetera, has enabled, to your point, like since I remember using Waze back in 2013, mm-hmm. pre-Google acquisition, right? Yep. And your mind is blown because that kind of GIS technology was, it was like looking at SketchUp or Google yeah. Earth for the first yeah. time, right? Yeah. You're like, wait, yeah. this technology is insane. Yeah. And now it's just assumed like everybody has it, right? Yeah. Like, now and it's, it's just, just like- this vector of, of the ability yeah. not only to capture the high-res imagery, but to store it and then to analyze it. And then provide context for that imagery over time, right? That's the key, I think, for this. There's a couple things that are a key for this. One is if you look, you look at thermal scanning industry over the last, like last year, the aggregate capacity of the industry might have been 50 gigawatts. You know, that's all the vendors put together. This year alone, we're going to do about 25 gigawatts of thermal inspections and reports. By the end of this year, we'll have about 80 gigawatts of throughput capacity. You know, by this time next year, one of the things that we are doing, which is significant, is, you know, we announced the North American Solar Scan. You know, we talked about this in January 2021, which has been great. We foresee a much larger uh, initiative next year. Our intention is to scan every asset over one megawatt in North America and make that data uh, available via our platform. For those of you who are unfamiliar, listen to the interview that we did in January. It's a really good interview on on understanding thermal scans. And we don't need to go into the background of like why it's important because it is. But we have a Tactical Tuesday that talks exactly about thermal scanning and really understanding how it ma- why it matters for your business. The North America solar scan is the, the goal, the aim, and you're near it, is to scan every single solar asset in North America. Can you tell me then what is missing now and where do we need to go? Well, there's a couple of things missing, you know, in terms of that objective. And, you know, what it, what it boils down to is when you're talking about capturing that much data, you're talking terabytes of data, right? The capture part is almost the easy part. Don't get me wrong. It's not actually easy. Uh, the route planning, um, just the technology and the sensors that you have on the aircraft. Uh, how do you optimize those sensors? That entire process is actually pretty involved. But what's really hard is the processing and being able to take that data and turn it into relevant information for the buyer of the data that they can easily interpret that. So. Uh, this is one of those things where when we look at it, we start to think back like, okay, why is thermal important and how does it actually help the industry? There's two pieces. One is the easy one is that it helps O&M companies identify defects and then optimize the delivery of their crews to repair those defects. That's one thing. But the second thing is probably more important and you don't really get to get to the second thing unless you have enough data. And that is how do you reduce the cost of capital for solar assets. Now, this is a bigger question, and this actually feeds back into that whole thing around tactics and strategy. So if you have a sufficient amount of data, like for example, all the assets in North America for one megawatt, what you can start to do is you can start to say, you know what, solar assets are no different than bonds, but imagine trying to buy a bond right now without a rating. How much would you pay for the bond? You would pay more. (laughs) You don't know what you would pay, but you know it'd be more, right? Because you don't know what the risk is. 
you don't have an, a view on the risk in the bond. Solar assets are very similar in this regard. People are buying and selling solar assets. Buyers are probably paying too much. In some cases, sellers are probably selling too cheap. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't have a view on the asset. Well, we're actually going to be able to provide for the first time an asset rating for solar assets for the industry. Right now, it's essentially, think of it as the same scale as for, for bonds. You've got AAA, triple B, triple C, and junk bonds, right? Uh, we're going to be doing the same thing for basically all the assets in North America. The processing behind this is mind-boggling. I mean, it, it is an absolute brain brain breaker. It's so interesting to see, too, like the way that you guys think are thinking about big data and these sort of digital twins to borrow a word from um, from yep. our friends at Raptor Maps. So that yep. was that was you know another another brilliant company that is thinking about what do we do with all this data. But it's so interesting to think about how you're looking at it differently, like almost through a different lens of how the data can be useful to companies that on the surface people look at and think, oh, it's a drone drone company, like they're capturing imaging, and in in reality, they're big data companies. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. And if you're a big data company, you need to have a lot of data. And, you know, we think that this data is actually going to fundamentally change how the industry uh, operates in a lot of ways, right? For starters, drones are very useful for spot checks or useful for on-demand functions. I don't think they're the right tool for, and, and by the way, Raptor agrees with us. They just announced their own version of the NAS in the Southwest. Southwest solar scan. It's not the right tool for health checks. You know, just can't operate at the scale that you needed to, you know. And that journey was one that took me a couple of years to get to. And, you know, I think if you're if you're in drones, that's what you think. You think about drones, you know. But coming from the industry, my view has always been how do you make an impact on the industry? How do you make a material impact on the industry? Mm-hmm. Thermal scans are just part of what the industry needs. And, you know, when I was at Sun Edison running global assets, I wasn't worried about my thermal scans. You know, what I was worried about was my crews getting killed when they were working on mid or high voltage sites. That was the thing that really kept me up at night. You know? This piece of the puzzle is useful if it's viewed in a broader context of what the problems the industry is really wrestling with. And the number one problem they're wrestling with is outside of all the noise around oxen and all that stupidity um, is, is um, cost of capital. That is the right. thing that, that kills projects, you know? So if we can help to facilitate that and really help to deliver higher value to the industry, we think this is going to be something that will be foundational to how the industry looks and acts on itself in the years ahead. Uh, we're going to be doing this scan every single year. Right now we do do the NAS two times a year in the fall and the spring. I think it's TBD if we're going to need to do that uh, once we get into a rhythm on this data set. We'll leave that to the clients to determine and what the value is for them. But we think this is the way that the industry has to move. One of the things that's fascinating for me is that uh, drone base as a business in particular fascinating is that this isn't even the biggest piece of the drone base business broadly. Correct. And you guys acquired, was it Airbase out of India? We did Airprobe out of India. And what's interesting about that is they are the UAV complement to our manned aviation business. If you look around the world, most most plants are scanned with drones right now. 
outside of North America, mainly because they don't have the density. The markets don't have the density to support manned aircraft. Mm, right. There's just not right. enough projects within a certain Just not area. enough projects yeah. within a tight enough area. There are a couple exceptions. You know, uh, Europe has a couple of high density markets, as you know, Italy, Spain, Germany, um, and then Japan. Uh, and then outside of that, you know, you got a couple markets that have some really amazing stuff going on, like Australia with that 10 gigawatt project that they're building up in Northern Australia. Yeah. But and then the, it's like just a handful of big projects, yeah. like Mexico's like. Exactly. Yep. 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 So, you know, UAVs are an important component and I don't want to downplay that. Um, and particularly for international footprint, they're, they're critical, you know. Um, that play was, uh, as well, they had a big technology play there, right? They did. In fact, if you think about the amount of data that we're collecting, one of the challenges that we have is that split between collection and processing. Mm-hmm. And we call that the automation gap, right? Yeah. Because the collection part, there's a lot of automation in collection, by the way, uh, that we've made investments in over the course of the last 18 months. A ton, actually. And then there is um, the challenge of once you've collected that data and you've done initial processing, all the analytics. Well, AirProbe has a great uh, machine learning team and they're in a very cost-effective market. So they basically set up this framework. When we start to think about, you know, strategy and tactics, tactics is like, okay, we can collect the data. How do we process the data? And what will be required to do that? We have to acquire our probe. Literally, like when I walked in the door almost, I was like, hi, Dan. It's awesome to be part of the team. By the way, you got to acquire this other company. And he was like, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, you're just you spending know. his money for yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, you know, that was a that was a key piece of the puzzle for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think their machine learning tool combined with their UAV footprint and mm-hmm their own ability to work internationally in the Middle East, Europe, Africa, you name it, South America has been really, really uh, impressive and been able to really drive things for us. So as to sort of come full circle and and tie pin on this whole strategy conversation, you mentioned, you know, you were acquired by DroneBase, AirProbe was acquired by DroneBase. Could you give us a sense of, or maybe tantalize us with a bit of the strategy around the acquisition strategy? Are you finished? Like, where's it going? So we do have one other thing that by the time this comes out, um, this will already be out there. So I can say it now. Uh, we actually acquired another company out of the UK called Inspect Squared. And they are focused specifically on transmission and distribution and on telecom. So, you know, what we really look at, we've got five verticals in. We've got wind, solar, properties, telecom, and T&D. Three of those, wind, solar, and TND, are foundational energy components, right? Uh, that means we'll be able to provide our clients with a complete view from the tie-in to the utility grid all the way back through to the operations and even beyond the tie-in, honestly. Like, we can do full, we'll do full TND inspections, you know, with drones and other aircraft on the transmission and substation infrastructure. It's a one-stop shop, basically. You know, if you're a big asset owner and you're trying to evaluate either the front end of the project, you know, do I have a hot substation with good LMPs? Is the transmission oversubscribed? Is it running hot, right? Uh, What do the feeder lines look like, right? All the way into, hey, I need a topo on this site. 
that's perfect. We can provide you because we have a LIDAR team that does that kind of work, right? Uh, and that works with local local surveyors, right? which is always a headache for developers. We have a construction monitoring thing project now that allows us to monitor large-scale projects and provide you key metrics. We are doing construction monitoring on the Gemini project east of Las Vegas, 7,000 acres, right? And so one gigawatt facility, just under one gigawatt. Uh, DC and with the largest battery system in the US. That entire monitoring basically allows their asset owners and the EPCs to kind of see in weekly basis what the project status is, what's working, what's not. Yeah. So, and then finally, after it's all done, the asset and thermal inspections. So, literally, front to back, we can cover every piece of your requirements from a GIS and intelligent imagery uh, standpoint. Is there anything that you regret that you, like you made the right or wrong decision that you would have done differently? When I think about kind of the journey, right, um, that a person goes through on this, it's nothing that I re- regret for starters. I'll say that about right now. And, you know, after Sun Edison, that was, a, that was like, if you'd asked me in the days after I left Sun Edison, is there anything I regret? I'm not sure I would have given you that answer. You know, in hindsight, when I can kind of look back on it now, I made some conscious choices about what I was willing and was not willing to do at Sun Edison and what I was willing to commit to the business and what I was not willing to commit to the business. And what it really boiled down to for me was, you know, I saw that business just eat people up and spit them out, you know, and they were making trades on their families you know, on their wives, in some cases, as, as we saw later on their ethics. And I just wasn't willing to do it, you know? And when I left in late 2011, I was pretty well fried. But when I look back on it, I was like, who gets to do stuff like this? You know, I've been, I've been really lucky in my life. I got to do this at uh, Digital Island way back in the days, right after Cisco, I helped start that business and um, got to see it go public and the whole nine yards and, you know, uh, got to transition into solar and got to see that entire thing, like really just in the go-go years, you know, crazy years. And from one of the, like one of the key players. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And had a seat at the table, you know? Yeah. And, you know, if I look at kind of, what we've done with PXYZ. If I had anything to do different with PXYZ, I probably would have raised money early on because we really tried to bootstrap everything. And I really probably, you know, if I had to do over again, I probably would have gone and raised capital earlier. But, you know, I, I don't have any regrets. And I feel like we landed in a good place. We're making a difference. Uh, we're making an impact. You know, I, th- I think for anybody who's in the entrepreneur's seat, the thing that they have to be able to do is they have to be able to detach because if you can't, you will make bad decisions if you're too close to it and you'll know because you're, you'll, it will cause you to have um, probably um, some pretty deep emotional reactions and you'll, you know, the universe sends signals to you generally in threes, you know, and if you hear that, that signal coming to you in threes, you need to stop and listen. And you step back and you need to say, what is going on here? And you need to really detach yourself from what you're doing 
and reflect on it. You know? And interestingly for me at PXYZ, we got approached by three companies. And I said, I got to listen. You know, there's a reason why this is happening. And drone base was the right place to go for us. But if I had something to do Giffen, I would have raised money earlier on. But like I said, I don't, I don't have any regrets really. Yeah. You know, it's a path we took and we ended up here and then that's okay. Well, it seems like a pretty good path. You know, the drill at Suncast, we like to get a sense of your own sense of personal development, or at least what has influenced how you sharpen the saw. Are there any particular books or resources that you routinely go back to or refer to others that have been instrumental in your own development? There is, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. But there's some it, there's some really foundational um, wisdom in there. It's almost about life. <laughs> uh, I used to actually when I I used to keep written notepads for many years, even when everybody else had their iPads and everything. And people would say like, "How come you have a notepad, Mark?" And I go, "I'm having a notepad because this technology has been proven for like." you know, 4,000 years and the pencil works and the pad works. And frankly, there's something about writing that I like, but I used to write many of these rules that I got from this book on the back side of each one of them. Every single notepad that I got, I would literally take it out and I'd write down kind of these, these key rules that I try to listen to. And of course now it's, I'm drawing a complete blank and I can't remember the name of it. You'll remember it as soon as I stop the I, recording. I probably, probably will. And, and, and I'll we can send leave you a, this I'll in. I'll send you a note. I'll That's send right. you a note. We can leave this in and I'll like, tag it. I'll yeah, tag it and we'll yeah. put the book in there. So there is another uh, an opportunity for you to go to our show notes page and check out exactly what book it was that was so foundational for, for Mark. Mark, on that same page, I'll link to your LinkedIn, which I know you check regularly and religiously. We mentioned yep. uh, before in our, um, our interview in January, that is a great way for folks to reach you. Um, you'll find that again on the show notes page, but if there's anybody out there, maybe who wants to reach out to you directly, do you mind sharing your email? Uh, yeah, it's mark.culpepper at dronebase.com. You can always get me there. And then of course, if you're on my LinkedIn network, um, I've got my personal email there as well. Fantastic. Well, let's end as we always do, Mark. And I'm so grateful for the deep dive with you and the time we've been able to abide together, but we want to wrap with our bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball, Mark Culpepper? I think, well, on the, on the big, big front, I think that solar is going to continue to surprise people. There's a lot of people saying like, it can't scale. It won't be able to do what we need it to do, you know? And you hear that particularly from the nuclear side of things. Um, I think what people keep underestimating and they just, I just don't think that um, people who who deal with big monolithic projects like like nukes understand is solar is simple, easy, and fast to install, and it's also viral because when you see your neighbor has it, you're like, oh, you put a solar array. It creates a conversation. Nuclear plants also create a conversation. They're just not in the same way. And I don't. I'm not trying to bash on nukes. Like I actually think that nukes have a role in a decarbonized world. But I think the people are going to continue to be astounded by how fast solar gets deployed. Even with the hiccups that we're having right now, it almost doesn't matter because there's just so, so many direct references. We just bought an electric car. We finally bought a Tesla. And, you know, we've been a holdouts for a long time. But, you know, the other day uh, I filled up my, my Highlander, my Toyota Highlander, cost me 105 bucks. 
Uh, my wife filled up the Tesla. $7 a gallon in Tahoe. Yeah. <laughs> my wife, my filled up the Tesla and at our local charging station here, it cost her 12 bucks. Oh, that, for a full charge. Yeah. For a full that's charge. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, now that's a discount charging station, but uh-huh. the point being the same, right? Like when you end up with that kind of discrepancy. Yeah. People ask, well, how can I lower my car, my, my charging costs? Well, install a solar array, right? Right. Um, you know, then it's, it's free and rabbit ears. Well, no, I, I know what that means, but it's not really yeah. free. But mm-hmm. the point being, I just think that these things, these type of viral experiences yeah. where people share their experiences with each other on social media, through their own personal connections, those are tangible, emotional, and quantitative impacts on people's lives. And it's going to continue to surprise people. Um, I think everybody is just underestimating how impactful this actually is. You know, it's almost to the point now where, you know, doesn't matter what your political affiliation is, doesn't matter, you know, what your particular dogma is. It's really, really hard to argue with those kind of numbers and those kind of direct emotional impacts. I have always noted in the past and maybe this is my my economics training, but if you look at deep recessionary events that has have hit the U.S. and probably really the world over the last roughly hundred years, they're almost always tied to energy, you know, specific energy events. And you know, if you look at the two thousand eight recession, personally, I think it was tied to the spike in oil and gas prices because. Literally, you had people who were buying homes they couldn't really afford, and they were already on the margin. And then oil and gas prices went crazy. Um, the last time they went crazy, basically, I think it just pushed a lot of people over the edge. They just couldn't do it anymore. And I think we're going to hit another, we're almost certainly going to hit a recession. Like, I just can't see another way around it, you know. But I think the way out of it is through renewables and through electrification. So that might not be all that. That's not really a big thing that everybody is not going to be terribly surprised by any of those. Those are real big revelations. But uh, I do think people continue to underestimate uh, the impacts of what's happening specifically in solar. Mark Culpepper is the general manager for Global Solar Solutions at Drone Base. Mark, it is always a pleasure to spend time with you. And I really feel that not only have I learned, but you've contributed a massive amount to the value of Suncast and to our solar warriors here on the journey with us. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. Always a pleasure. And we will see you out there in the world uh, shortly, I'm sure. My, my. (laughs) Solar warriors, I hope that you can really appreciate and soak in the wisdom of what was just shared. Thank you, my friend, Mark. That was so good. The brain droppings, the wisdom nuggets, the, the deep well of water we can draw from is really, really refreshing for me. And I love when I get these interviews where from start to finish, and this is a long one. Thank you for committing to it, Solar Warriors, for listening all the way through. From start to finish, Mark catered his conversation to you to help you along your journey from tying the connections through career selection, strategic planning, the arc of brand building, everything that Mark shared along this long interview is applicable and tangible. And I'm so grateful that you got to experience it along with me. 
If you, like me, are an infinite learner, well, you, my fellow Philo Math, can find resources and highlights from my research in preparing for this episode, as well as all the other uh, conversations we've had here on Suncast, the social media links to Mark and, and our other guests, book recommendations, and so much more over at the blog on mysuncast.com. Since I know you're already going online, I'd like you to do two things for me, please. Two things. The first is please leave us a rating and review. It makes all the difference to our discoverability. We've got more than 65 star ratings right now. I'm looking to try to get over 100 now that we have, you know, 500 episodes. I would love you to contribute to those ratings. You can do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. The second thing, and equally as important, you could go onto LinkedIn. Hopefully you're connected and are following along with me on that journey as well. We post every time we do an episode and we post a lot of stuff in between as well. I'd love for you to find the post that we've done on this episode and share it to your community. And if you do, even if you don't share it, like it and engage with me in a comment. Let me know what it was that inspired you so much that you stuck around through the whole interview and heard us here in uh, the outro, heard me make this call to action for you. And of course, we'll be back next week with our Tactical Tuesdays, as always, practical advice on building your energy, your clean energy career and practical long form interviews just like this one executive profiles of the founders the people in the front lines that are building this clean energy economy thanks once again to our sponsors who help make all of this free and possible for you without you paying uh, a penny other than the most valuable thing, thing that you've got and that's your attention your time you can learn more about our sponsors as well as how you could partner with suncast tribe over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to thank you so much for showing up, Solar Warrior, it's half the battle.